Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but uh, often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. Welcome, Peter, to the latest edition of our Moses and Methuselah podcast. This week, we're going to tackle a rather different subject from the one we're normally talking about, which is mainly to do with the financial markets. This is more indirect, perhaps, than that, but not without interest. The headlines in the newspapers in the last week, we're recording this on the 19th of June, have been full of stories about events at a hedge fund firm called Odie Asset Management, managed by a gentleman called Crispin Odie, who's been uh, at this particular game for uh, something like 30 years, uh, having previously worked at Bearings. He's had a volatile career, I think, in terms of performance of his hedge fund. It's uh, very much up and down. He does spectacularly well in some years, very poorly in other years. Did well out of Brexit, for example, and also when the UK got thrown out of the ERM many, many years ago, 30 years ago or more. But that's not really the subject of the conversation today. The subject today concerns what has happened to his firm, Odie Asset Management. Only a little over a week ago, the Financial Times, the financial newspaper in the UK, published a story alleging that more than a dozen women had made complaints against Chris Minodi for either abusive behaviour or, in certain cases, inappropriate sexual behaviour. This was denied by Chris Minodi through his spokesman. But since then, within about a week, his business has essentially collapsed. We can go through the different stages where it's happened. But many of the banks and prime brokerages that supplied his business have have withdrawn so they don't want to work with anymore. And the partners in the limited partnership of the management firm have basically sacked him, essentially told him to leave, even though he's the majority shareholder. So it's an extraordinary story how quickly this particular firm, which manages about $4 billion in assets, has effectively collapsed. And we're not going to talk about the specific allegations. I need to emphasize that they've been denied and they will be investigated and so on. But it does raise a whole series of issues, particularly for private fund management companies and the way that they are regulated and operated. Before we talk through some of these issues, I thought I'd just start by saying, uh, what was your reaction when you started reading this particular story? Morning, Jonathan. I'm glad that we're touching on this relatively crucial subject and also the timing of it. It's not a coincidence that to take one of the service providers, and we'll come back to that, uh, which was JP Morgan, why they ended up jettisoning their relationship with OD Asset Management, because it made me think how, of course, they were involved in inverted commas with Jeffrey Epstein, and that has caused them a lot of trouble and cost them a lot of money. And so on the basis that they don't want to be seen to be in the same situation twice, They took the lead and announced that they were no longer going to act as custodian bank to the OD funds, which is much trickier than if you're simply the prime broker. When I first read this, it was on a Saturday, I must say I was quite gobsmacked. I was also quite astonished that it said all through the article, or all the articles really, that this had been brewing for a while. And um, a few conversations later, I realized that it had indeed been brewing for a while and that he did operate under the suspicion of that kind of behavior. 
basically it takes 30 years to build up a reputation. And then it takes one weekend for the reputation to be completely and utterly destroyed. As you can see, because it wasn't only the prime brokers and the custodians who left, it was also a big amount of clients who redeemed their holdings, causing another set of separate problems. So it all kind of cascaded, if you like, into events. And I personally don't believe that this is the end of it. I don't think that this is full stop, turn the page, at least he's cleared off with a sizable fortune and all the rest of it. I don't think it's as simple as that. One of the issues here, I think, is that the complaints that were aired with the Financial Times initially uh, by the women who alleged that they were either bullied or receipt of inappropriate behaviour, one of the issues for them, it appears from what was being said, is that they did not know how to raise this issue or complain about it effectively, given that the firm they worked for was effectively controlled by the founder, Chris Pinoli, whose name was above the door, above the door plate in his Mayfair office. I should mention at this point that I have actually have met Chris Pinoli in the past and talked to him on a number of occasions, though not in the last 10 years or so. Become much too grand for me since then. But uh, in any case, that seemed to be the issue. The women in question felt constrained to raise issues about his behaviour because they weren't sure who to appeal to in the first instance, and there was no kind of formal process by which they could raise their complaints. It was only after a trial of two years ago in which Chris Benodi was uh, in court accused of inappropriate behaviour, and that case was dismissed by the judge. But that was in turn prompted a, a lot of other women employees to compare notes and so on and to realise there had been what they claim is a pattern of behaviour. So as you, Peter, have your name on the door of an investment management firm, and you employ a number of people, obviously, including women, how do you organise your entity such that in the extraordinarily impossible likelihood that something would happen at your firm? But if there was something that came up about one of the employees, for example, what kind of processes do you have to allow people to raise their concerns inside the firm? I will definitely answer that question, but only after the following thoughts. I do find it quite astonishing that the Financial Times, I read the Financial Times every day for hours, and I could talk to you for hours about how I see the Financial Times as having changed in the last decade because it has profoundly changed. And whether what happened now with Odi would have happened or could have happened 20 years ago is, is another question. But the fact is that the Financial Times broke a story on a Saturday morning, and by the Monday morning, all these things happened. And so the Financial Times acted as judge, jury, and executioner, all in one go, and in a very, very effective way. And then, once it had accomplished its hatchet job, irrevocably and irreversibly, that's for sure, once it had done that, the editor of the Financial Times climbed onto the high ground, the moral high ground, as I call it, and wagged the fingers and delivered a pontificating lecture to all private owners with their names on the door, teaching them and lecturing them on corporate governance. And so, as far as I'm concerned, that round trip of judge, jury, executioner, hatchet job, and then the moral high ground came full circle. I think it's perfectly normal and natural for you to ask me what kind of things we have in place to prevent that sort of thing from happening. 
And I would argue that it's a question of culture. First and foremost, it's a question of culture. And I think corporate cultures are rather like snowflakes in the sense that there's no corporate culture that is identical to any other corporate culture. They come in various shapes and sizes. And also it depends on the degree of care and due diligence that the employer takes when conducting his recruitment drive. Now, in my case, to answer your question from a certain angle, when we in London employ a new person, be it in operations or in marketing or in investment or anything else for that matter, the number of interviews and hours per interview is far, far higher and longer than the average. And so I can fairly state that we know our candidates pretty well already on the first day of their employment. And now to answer your question, we have obviously placed a lot of emphasis on corporate governance and on compliance, not only from what the regulator requires, but also from a sort of common sense approach, making sure that all our policies and procedures are well known to everyone, well understood, sanctioned by the board, and what have you. And whenever it's necessary to upgrade and update those policies and procedures, then we do that. Now, we specifically have procedures and policies in place which relate to the subject that Crispin Odie was accused of. I would say not right now. Whether we will or will not is something that the shareholders of the company will decide. But again, what happened at Odie, from what I read, permeated across top management. From what I read, he was shielded by some of his partners as long as he could, and then it all unraveled. So that's a completely different culture from, I hope, most cultures, but certainly from our culture. You raised a number of issues there, Peter. I think on the last one, I made the point that, of course, Chris Benetti set up his hedge fund, I think, over 30 years ago, and you've been running your business for over 30 years. And hedge funds in those days were pretty much unregulated back in the day. They tended to attract characters who were big risk takers, and maybe they were risk takers in their personal lives as well as in their investment behavior. Not all by any means, of course, but they attracted a certain kind of spirit and they tended to be run by quite large dominating, domineering personalities, if you like. And that in turn may have led to a sort of culture which, as you say, was a little bit like a kind of Sun King court of Versailles, you know, where everybody revolved around this very dynamic, uh, entrepreneurial, often quite extravagantly behaved individual. And of course, if you join that as an employee, you would be sucked into that circle, if you like. You would become, in a way, a bit of a courtier as well. What was strange about this affair is that in 2021, uh, around the time of the court case, when uh, one specific allegation was taken to court by a former female employee, the executive committee of the thing basically tried to rein in the behaviour of Mr. Odie, according to these reports we've had. And eventually, after they did that, the second time, they were basically sacked. He got rid of them, essentially. And it's only in this final stages that the uh, the partners of the firm have effectively been forced to take action to save themselves. And they attempted to save the firm. But it looks like that won't succeed now, as you say. Some of the funds, what's left of them, will eventually end up in the hands of other fund managers, I dare say. So you could say partly this is something to do with the kind of history of hedge funds and, and the way they were started back in there and the kind of behavior that was tolerated. Plus, of course, the, all the evidence we've had because of Epstein and Me Too, uh, Harvey Weinstein and these other very unsavory uh, 
histories we've had to learn over the last year that, that attitudes towards women in places of employment have changed. And uh, women have at least found a voice uh, to force some of the very worst offenders to some kind of uh, justice. But in, I guess, the eyes of most observers, you can't particularly blame the females for joining a firm that they may not have been aware of the culture and then finding it very uh, difficult. But I think you can certainly pose questions for the others who are in positions of authority within the firm, because if they, they tried to take the action they did two years ago and the executive committee got fired effectively, that suggests that they had some knowledge that not everything was perfect. And they should, I think, perhaps uh, will be held to account for that. I guess the other thing which is always brought up in these cases is, well, should the regulator have done something? How do you define who is a fit and proper person? That's the kind of test you can apply to directors of companies and so on. Is it actually appropriate to take into account the personal behavior of, of individuals? Uh, what would be your thoughts about that, Peter? I think a line has been crossed with regard to appropriate behavior of individuals. And of course, the regulator can overregulate. But I think fitness and probity is a general concept. But if what he did is true, it goes way beyond the limits of fitness and probity and is clearly in the wrong side. There's no discussion about that, nor is there any discussion that as and when you employ female employees, you have to take particular care in giving them the utmost politeness, respect and protection. I think he only has himself to blame. Maybe his barrister and lawyers can find um, some legal ways of protecting him. But from a moral high ground perspective, there's absolutely no discussion there. But to come to what I said before, the fast track hatchet job done by a newspaper with all the consequences attached, that is something that really astonished me. It didn't go through a court of law. If he's innocent because he hasn't been proven guilty, then the fast track demolition job has ruined his career for good and ever. Well, that's true. But of course, I dare say you're not expecting me as someone who spent many years working in newspapers and so on to necessarily agree with your view on this. I mean, experience suggests that these kind of stories only really appear when other routes to expose these kind of behavior have either failed or never seen the light of day. And I think that's one of the depressing aspects about the Weinstein and the Epstein stories in particular is that it took a long time because these were powerful men in powerful positions. It took a long time, not only for the stories to emerge, but for those who were complaining to be taken seriously in the first instance. They were often dismissed as being ambulance chasers or, or uh, looking for payoffs. One of the issues that uh, one of the correspondents the FT raised was whether or not it's right that firms have the ability to effectively force people who've got complaints upheld to sign non-disclosure agreements so that actually nothing is ever heard about in return for giving them money to basically buy their silence. That's a complicated issue, I think, because on the one hand, that's obviously not a good way of proceeding because it tends to cover things up. On the other hand, if it was more open every time somebody raised a claim, it would create an alternative risk, which is that people are brought down by innuendo and glory hunters. So uh, I think that's quite a complicated area to get the right balance. If you go back many years, and I, I mean, I was brought up in the era of Harold Evans, the late Sir Harold Evans, editor of the Sunday Times, who, for example, did run some newspaper campaigns which were extraordinarily effective. One of them was about thalidomide, exposing the damage that drugs developed by uh, a drug company had permanently damaged children on birth. Uh, that was covered up for a long time. It was only a newspaper that exposed that. Similarly, lead in petrol, that was another issue in the UK where the evidence about the damage that lead in petrol could do to people's health 
was covered up. It was only a newspaper that set us on a path to dealing with that problem. And in this case, you say that the FT was judge and jury. They weren't necessarily the executioner. I mean, the execution was done by all the various parties involved, by the way they reacted to the story. I think what irritates you is the fact that the FT then chose to opine at length as if it was the judge doing a summing up in a case and sounding off gratuitously um, about to others, including uh, presumably yourself. I mean, indirectly, you were the kind of owner of a fund management firm which their homilies were addressed, if you like, even though in this case you would be completely free from any association with this kind of behaviour. So I take your point that there was a slightly sanctimonious error about the way the FT has dealt with this. It does come, of course, also after another scandal in the UK, which involves the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, where the Director General of the CBI was fired basically again for uh, alleged inappropriate behaviour, though he denied that. And lots of members of the CBI then said, we're going to leave unless you change things and get your act together. I would rather agree with your point that there's a certain element of cowardice, of moral cowardice amongst many of these institutions who only leave when something has really got to a point where they have no choice. They're prepared to go along with it for quite a long time until they judge it's in their interest to cut links with a firm that's been the subject of a lot of negative attention. But I would defend the right of the FT to publish this kind of story. It was clearly well-researched. They spoke to a lot of women and they brought it out into the open in a way that nobody else had been able to do, even though many people will say in retrospect, ah, well, we knew what Chris Minotti was like. Where could we take this story now? I think, as you say... OD Asset Management or the firm is obviously finished. I think it won't come back from this. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not a particularly significant part of the financial service industry. It has resonance with people because Chris Mary was a high-profile figure, donated a lot of money to the Conservative Party, very visible figure in wealthy circles in London, a larger-than-life character, as I said. But the whole point about hedge funds, when they started out at least, was that they were private pools of capital where people took risks without the regulators looking over their shoulder. And if it all went wrong, they had only themselves to blame. But of course, we've moved on from there. And maybe that isn't a very healthy development either. What would you say to that? It is not a very healthy development either. But I think at the root of my thinking is the fact that if you go back a few months when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and when the Credit Suisse story broke, which was actually earlier. If you remember, we discussed the fact that last year in November, there was an Australian journalist who started basically writing negative stories about Credit Suisse. You'll see in a minute why I'm suddenly talking about Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank. But what I'm trying to say is that there's no question that in the spring of this year, the run on those banks was the result of the existence of social media and how you can withdraw your money at the tap of a finger on an app and you can cause the demise of the bank within a day or two or a couple of days. You probably wouldn't classify the Financial Times as uh, social media, but it's not the same social media that caused the run on the banks. But nonetheless, there was a similar outcome. So earlier in the year, you had social media in the modern sense of the expression causing these banks to fail. And, then, and now you've had a traditional social media or traditional media mm-hmm. causing a run on the business of Crispin Odi to take place. In the wider context, uh, as you mentioned, I don't think it's going to have any lasting. The fact that Odi asset management has probably gone. Uh, will not have any lasting effects on, I don't know, guilt yields or the external value of the pound or 
or the government collapsing. I don't think any of that. Just like Silicon Valley Bank will be remembered as a very badly managed bank that had been overlooked or overseen by the Federal Reserve. And uh, there were lots of people who shared the blame in these two situations. Fast forward so and so many months into the future, I don't think that there's going to be Yes, maybe the editor will have caused privately owned companies to be obliged to have sexual harassment policies and procedures in place as a component of the fitness and probity requirements. That's perfectly possible. But beyond that, you just have to shrug your shoulders and turn the page. I don't think the disappearance of one hedge fund is a matter for any concern by anybody. As you say, regulators have a nasty habit of piling on more regulation after the horse has bolted and imposing yet more burdens on companies and so on. You can argue whether that's on balance, positive or negative. I think what is true to say is I think that interesting to see some recent evidence about the role of women in financial services. They are becoming more influential, more important, filling more of the more important jobs. And while there's no guarantee that uh, uh, being female will lead to better behaviour in the workplace, it is encouraging, I think, that the attitudes towards women in the city, certainly since I've been involved, have evolved in a positive way. This will probably reinforce that trend. Many employers will be even more careful than they would personally already be in treating women with respect and so on. So I think that's a positive gain. Just jump in here with a question to you. You will obviously have noticed, you know, because you were associated with an FT over a long, long time. And I always enjoyed reading your columns. But in those days, that was before the Japanese took over the FT and before they increased quite substantially the number of female journalists and writers. I always look at the names of the journalists and I recognize actually all these names. I always did because they're very good the journalists. They have their own styles and so on. But my question to you, Jonathan, is do you think that if the number of FT journalists, female journalists, had not risen so exponentially as they did in the last 10 years, do you think that this story would have broken with the same force and speed as it did? If you look at the investigative piece that the FT wrote on early asset management, it was mostly women who wrote it. Would that have been the same in the olden days? Well, the editor of the Financial Times is now a woman, as is the editor of The Economist, for example, another well-established publication. I think that probably is the case. I mean, back in the day, long, long back in the day, when the city was a male preserve, the editors of national newspapers and senior reporters, they to some extent shared that culture. I'm not saying that they behaved poorly or would not uh, hesitate to publish stories, but their particular focus on what made a story would undoubtedly uh, be different, I think. So yes, I think there definitely is a factor there. Yes, and please don't think that I'm criticising that I'm not. Although I may be completely wrong, you can tell me that I'm completely wrong, but I sometimes feel that female journalists, when they write a piece, they write it for female readers. Now, I mentioned that to somebody some time ago, and that person told me I'm completely bonkers, that's complete nonsense. But I do get that feeling a little bit, but that's just by the by. You know, I don't agree with the FT on a lot of things. As you say, I used to write a column for them for many years. Uh, I rarely did agree with them on most things. But that's a kind of sign of a healthy newspaper that has room for different views and different perceptions of things. In my own publications, when I write about investment trusts, for example, I did get called out one year because I didn't have any female contributors to my annual investment trust handbook. And I had to say, well, you're absolutely right. Because at that stage, still, 
the great majority of directors, of fund managers, of analysts, and so on, were all male. But it was definitely a wake-up call. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of female fund managers are coming to the top of the pile now, getting the top jobs. A lot of analysts are female, very good ones. So I think it is changing. And the latest study by, um, there's an annual, or roughly annual or so, study by one of the brokers into the representation of women on boards and so on in the investment trust sector. And that does show that the number of women on boards has now surpassed the average across the quoted company market and is ahead of the kind of targets that people have set. So um, it is changing. Absolutely. We haven't touched on the financial markets of the last few weeks. I think that journalists, again, in the FT, would start to become bullish with regard to financial markets. That's when I would be very worried. <laughs> let me let me end it on that note. <laughs> yes, well, we'll come back and talk about that because you're absolutely right. That is a classic sign. And uh, it's proved yet again that contrarianism does work in the short term anyway. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silent. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.